Well, good morning. I have a built-in alarm clock in my body that I know that when I'm going to get up really early, which I always do when I'm teaching, preaching, and pray. So this morning, my built-up, my built-in alarm clock went off super early, and I fell back asleep. And I had a dream, and this dream was very, very disturbing. I dreamed that I was somewhere that I had never been before preaching to a really large group of people, most of whom I did not know, and I could not find the text in my Bible. I, I kept trying to find the text, and I couldn't find it. And I finally turned and opened the Bible, and I realized that it was written in another language. And I'm going, what the? And I'm trying to, I'm thumbing through looking for the English, and I couldn't find it. And I'm like, and, and this, this, this is going on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. And people are just, you know, very graciously sitting there. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I, you know, I'm trying to find it. And finally, this guy loans me his phone, and I couldn't operate his phone. And I, I'm not kidding you. This was like 20 minutes of me trying to find. People are getting up, walking around, you know, like, you know, talking to each other. I'm still up there, and I never was able to find the text. I finally just went. I actually said, you know, in 38 years of ministry, this has never happened to me. I, can't, I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. I, I'm just... And I just, that was it. And then I woke up, and I was like, oh, my gosh. It was horrible. And I, I was just been, Lord, what, is, what did it mean? Does it mean that I'm not prepared? I need to prepare more? I mean, it couldn't be that. I mean, it could be, but I don't think it is. I don't know that this is the interpretation of it. If anybody out there has it, please tell me. But I'm just going to guess that I felt like what the Lord was showing me is that there are times when I'm teaching that what I'm teaching you may have a hard time comprehending. It may be very difficult to, to grasp it in the sense that it's like it's not, it doesn't, it's, not coming, it's not coming through the way that it needs to. This text today might be one of those. It, there's a chance, I'm running a chance here of, of you not grasping, not that you want to intellectually understand it, but you won't with your heart comprehend it. It'd be like another language being spoken if I was speaking another language to you or reading it from another language. So I just pray that it will, it will not be that and that you'll leave today and God will have spoken to you. I want to read today from Matthew five seventeen through 20 as we continue our study through the book of Matthew, not of this world. We've entitled the whole series. We're looking at the life of a of a believer, and, of, uh, and more than that, corporately, of the church as being a set-apart people who have been called out of and brought into another existence, another, another reality. And, and, and we've been looking at all of the implications, and we have much more to talk about and look at as we go through the book of Matthew. So let me read Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And I'm going to read it in English, and I've got the text right here. And, and then we'll pray. Four verses. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law 
or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Some Bibles say not a jot or a tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, interesting word, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Spirit of God, we welcome you. We honor you in this place. We need you to teach us. Lord Jesus, you promised that you would send the helper and that when he came, he would lead us into all truth that he would remind us of your words and that he would help us to understand them. So we come to you today in faith, knowing and believing that that, in fact, is your heart and your plan and we believe it will happen. And I pray for these words that you spoke so many centuries ago today to have meaning for us. As your church on the earth today in the 21st century at the end of the age, open the eyes of our heart to see and understand these things. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of gathering in your name and of contemplating and learning and thinking upon these great truths. So we welcome you and thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if there were an overhead today, which there isn't, there would be four questions or three questions on it. So you can just imagine that it's up there, you know, with the way Matt does it so nicely, which I don't know how to do, so I didn't do it. The first question would be this. Why is Jesus saying this right now, of all times, in this sermon, in this, 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 ex, you know, this time of him speaking and teaching on the mountain? Why these this strange statement, these four verses. The second question would be, what does it mean? What is he talking about? And of course, the third is, what does it have to do with us, if anything? And I'll be honest with you, when I knew that I was going to be teaching this week and I'm teaching again next week, I thought, yeah, you know, maybe I'll just go right into the next text past this. Not because I didn't want to teach it, but because it's like, it's, it's one of those texts that just seems like, yeah, 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 we get that. We, we kind of know what he means. But I want to say, then I hope this is not hyperbole, because I'm not intending it to be that. But there may not be four more, more important verses in all of the New Testament than these four verses. These might be, these might be the very key to unlock our understanding, for certain it is, of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But it may be very possibly the key to unlocking our understanding of all that follows in Paul's revelation and Paul's teaching that he brings. And I'll tell you why in a moment. 
These four verses are absolutely crucial to properly interpreting the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and probably what's already preceded as well. What Matt taught so well last week and what he talked a week before about the Beatitudes and then last week of being salt and light. And I think somebody in our communitas said this when we were discussing it last week, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, that it's easy for the, the, the Sermon on the Mount to become something that we feel like we need to do. It's like it becomes suddenly a, a, something that we feel like we need to measure up to. I think maybe Cain said it. That we need to measure up to something and become somehow, we have to start to do something more than what we're doing. And I want to say to you right now that that is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, we're going to see that in fact, he's saying the exact opposite of that. And that should be freeing, and it will be freeing if we can understand it. In answer to the first question, why did Jesus say this right now? Why did he say this right now? I want to remind you of something we've been teaching in our context here for many years, and that is the truth of the new humanity, that we are a new creation in Christ. And this statement is a, is a statement that I feel like God dropped into my spirit many years ago that I've just thought on and taught on and, and meditated and preached and read about, is that Jesus Christ, beginning, be, being the beginning of the new creation of God, his own words, I am the beginning of the creation of God. In Revelation chapter 3, as he spoke to the church of Laodicea, I am the beginning of the creation, of the new creation, this truth that God began over again with humanity in Christ. He began anew. He tried to do it with Noah. He cleansed the earth in its entirety. And he left one family that was a righteous family to begin again. But Noah, as soon as he started, he got drunk. And he sinned from the very beginning. It was not going to happen with Noah. Because within Noah, there was still the seed of Adam. There was still what was of Adam's nature dominant. And it is normal to mankind to do what Noah did. As Dean was saying in the class this morning, excellent class. As he watched a you know, woman last yesterday or whenever on, you know, up in Medford and her life and her words and her actions and her dress and immediately our heart judges and then God says, no, no, love, you got to see how I see. And what else, should, what else can you expect? This is what is the inevitable result of living in a world we're living in. God began over, though, with Christ. He was the beginning of something new with mankind. That's a radical, radical reality and a radical truth because Paul would then say he was the firstborn of many. Of course, firstborn from the dead. But he also is the first of his kind. And there would be many others that would follow after him and that would become like him because they would be born also, listen, from above. And they would have within them a different life source. Man is to accurately reflect the image of God. We are image bearers. And God did not intend for us to change turn over a new leaf, or try harder, but he just intended to start over and birth something new. 
that he had intended all along would be what it meant to be an image bearer on the earth. And what he has birthed and what he has intended is something that is so radical and so distinctive that it's like salt that keeps society from petrifying. And it's light that will pierce the greatest darkness. So there's two very familiar texts in Galatians 1.3 and Colossians 1.13. I'm not going to turn to them. But they both say that we have been delivered. Delivered through the atoning work of Christ. Delivered from darkness and transferred or brought into light. And that word delivered is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 when he says that if your right eye, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. Gouge it out. That's the same word as the word delivered in Galatians 1 and in Colossians 1. It's the same Greek word. It's, it's not a word that's that a casual word. It means something violent. Just violent. Something has happened when God took us from darkness and brought us into light. And out of the present evil age, through the work of Jesus Christ. And so these four verses are speaking of, of, of the truth now of this new humanity and what it means to live out this life, the life of, on the other side of the cross. And we've talked about this again, and I'm going to say it one more time. You're going to hear it. You guys hear it. I know you're sick of it. It's one thing to come to the cross and to be before the cross and to know that you're a sinner and to fall on your knees and to ask for forgiveness and, to, and then to know that you're forgiven and to thank God that you're forgiven. It's a whole other thing to walk then beyond that cross and to begin to live the Christian life. And that's where the rubber meets the road, and that's where it's hardest. Most Christians live on this side of it. They're always needing forgiveness, always asking for it, and always receiving it. But they never learn how to walk. They never learn how to be followers. They never learn how to be true disciples of Christ. And that's what all of Paul's teaching was, honestly. It's as though Paul could have said, okay, you've come to the cross, therefore having been justified by faith. And we have peace with God. And we're reconciled to God. Now, present the members of your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This now is your spiritual service of worship. Learn now how to walk the walk of a new creation believer. And it's an identity issue, and that's what I'm going to be hitting at today. It comes down to an identity of who we see and understand ourselves, listen, to truly be. And so these four verses are the key. They're the key to understanding Paul's teaching on the new man. His admonition to put off the old man, to take off the old man, and to clothe yourself in the new man. Listen to what he says, which is created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. The new man has been created to be like God. Ephesians 4.24, in righteousness and holiness. Created to be like God. And then he says in Colossians 3, and this new man is being renewed in knowledge in the image, again, of its creator. See, we're not talking about, about trying to be a better human being. We're talking about a whole new kind of human being. 
It's radical. And most believers never are able to grasp it because it is an issue of first of revelation, seeing it by the Spirit of God, and it's an issue of faith and taking hold of it by faith and learning how to walk it out. And it is not easy. I'm not pretending or saying that it is. So Jesus now makes this statement in the middle of nowhere. Do not think, and Dean said this this morning, and it just it was so good. He asked the question, he said, what is the, the predominant characteristic of the gospel? And he answered it by saying, the gospel confronts. The gospel is confrontational. We always think the gospel is love, the gospel is grace, the gospel is peace. Yes, it is all those things. But the very essence of the gospel is that it confronts. It confronts because it is love. And it does confront in grace, and it will bring peace. But it, it, it confronts the lie, and it confronts the nature of sin, and it confronts the power of the enemy hold on humankind. And so Jesus begins in verse 17, and he immediately is confrontational, and he says, do not think. Do not think. The very, very first words we hear from Jesus is, is that he's confronting their thinking. Can I tell you this morning, God wants to confront your thinking. And the Spirit of God is saying to you and to me today, do not think. Not that you're not supposed to think, but quit thinking how you're thinking. In regards to these truths, and these truths are the eternal nature of the Word of God, the law of God, and the fulfillment of the law and what it means. Change your thinking about truth. Change your thinking about law, the law. Change your thinking about our obligation to the law and change your thinking about its implications and how we are to live. There was a book by a man named Harold Berman who was a professor of law at Harvard University. He's now passed on. And he wrote a book called The Interaction of Law and Religion. And he had an interesting thesis. And it might sound, um, it might sound obvious to you, but it's powerful in its truth. His thesis is that in the Western culture, we've had a massive loss of confidence in two things, in law and in religion. And he believes that one of the causes of this loss of confidence in law and religion is that there has been a separation of the two from one another. We have separated them. And his conclusion in this big, thick book, which I did not read, but I read about, is that religion provides the absolute basis for morality and law. And he used the word religion, not Christianity. Religion. And he said that he feared that Western culture would be doomed to relativism in law because it had embraced relativism in morality. It had lost the sense of absolute truth and abandoned it. We have broken away in our culture from religion, from the moorings of absolute truth, from the concept of God. And so we are now living in an existential relativism, moment by moment, 
relativism defined by our, by our experience, by our emotion, and by what we think at any given time. And this is even true regarding law and the interpretation of law, unfortunately. And that's why you have so many courts overthrowing other courts, because it depends on the judge and how he decides, right? He's going to interpret the previous court's finding. His point was that when law is separated from belief, from a belief in an absolute moral truth, we lose confidence in the law because it too becomes arbitrary. It does not have its moorings in absolute truth. Truth that defines what, listen, what is truly just, what is truly righteous, and equally important, what is in fact unrighteous and unjust, and therefore truly evil. Truly evil. So when you abandon God, when you abandon theology, his point was that you abandoned truth. And when you've abandoned absolute truth, you cannot have confidence in law because it becomes relative. Trying to make laws without truth or without ultimate value is impossible. You cannot build a consistent legal system on philosophical humanism. It will be inconsistent at best and contradictory and ultimately unjust. It will fluctuate the principles of what is right and what is wrong and then therefore what is righteous and unrighteous will not be able to be determined. So we have questions today that are surrounding us and swirling around us. Who determines when life begins? Can there be a law now that can be passed that can state that? Who can determine when life should end? Are there laws now that are going to be passed that will determine that? Arbitrary laws determined by human, humanistic philosophy. Is there a way to know what is moral and what is immoral? What is truly just and what is unjust? I read a very disturbing article, and I'm sure some of you saw this as well. A young girl in Germany did a TEDx uh, presentation on pedophilia. And I want to just read a really short portion of it. Her talk was that titled, Pedophilia is a Natural Sexual Orientation. And she did this at the University of Würzburg in Germany. And her point was that it is like any other sexual orientation. And quote, this is what she said. According to current research, pedophilia is an unchangeable sexual orientation, just like, for example, heterosexuality. No one chooses to be a pedophile, she says. No one can cease being one, therefore. The difference between pedophilia and other sexual orientations, though, is that living out this sexual orientation will end in a disaster. So therefore, she encouraged accepting pedophiles and encouraging them not to pursue their desire, and that would help them end their suffering. We shouldn't increase their sufferings of pedophiles by excluding them, by blaming them, because we only increase their isolation, she said, and increase the chance, therefore, of abuse for children. 
She said we should accept that pedophiles are people who have not chosen their sexuality and who, unlike most of us, will never be able to live it out freely. But he immediately, <laughs> behavioral scientists said, no, pedophilia is a mental disorder. It is not something you are born with. And TEDx ended up taking this talk down, but it has been widely dispersed on YouTube because it is only the beginning of what has been absolutely certainly said before that this is what's going to happen in society if we accept these things as being right, moral, and just. Where does it end? Who decides where it ends? Because after all, what is really truth? Jesus immediately says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Do not think that I came to abolish them. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. What does he mean? What does he mean by this? What is the law and the prophets? Basically, the law and the prophets was all of the Old Testament revelation. It's what we would call the Old Testament. It's all that Jesus had of Scripture. And it's all that Paul had of Scripture. They did not have what we have. They were Scripture writers. And so we have the New Testament because of the words of Christ and the acts of Christ and the life of Christ and because of the revelation of Paul and Peter and James and John and the writer to the Hebrews. We have what we have is the New Testament. All they had was Genesis through Malachi, the law and the prophets. But Jesus' point is this, is that that is absolute truth. That is the truth. Jesus immediately begins with this assumption that there is truth and that it can be known and that truth is God's word. Now, even that statement, even that statement is, is, is debatable in the minds of many people. Is the word of God absolute truth? That belief has to be known by faith. It's not an intellectual, it's a faith belief that the word of God is absolute truth. But it's been proven to be so for centuries by those who believe it. And because the fulfilled prophecies point to the fact that what God said, in fact, does come to pass. But this is an incredible statement that Jesus makes here. That the law given to Moses and the righteousness foretold of the coming Messiah by the prophets, that this was what he came to fulfill, that he was not coming to abolish them. He was coming to fulfill them. Because there was already a misconception of who Jesus was this early on in his ministry. And there was already a, a misunderstanding of what he had come to do. They were not understanding him. He was being viewed as a revolutionary. They were hoping that he would be a revolutionary, someone who would overthrow the prevailing system of Rome, of Roman oppression. And the question was swirling, and even in their minds, was he now going to arbitrarily abolish all of the law and the prophets had taught the nation for hundreds of years? 
Was the Old Testament law and the, and the words of the prophets now irrelevant and outdated? And were they in need of a radical and revolutionary revamping? You see, that's what's happening today, too. Scripture's outdated. This is old-fashioned. We, we're, now, we're now enlightened. We understand now things that these men did not understand. We need to reevaluate these things. No. This is the truth. This is absolute truth. And so Jesus comes not to confront Rome, but this is what was amazing. He didn't confront Rome. He confronted the religious teachers and confronted the thinking of the religious leaders of the day. He confronted the scribes who interpreted the law and the Pharisees who then put the burden of the law on the people to be obedient. And you see, the issue for Jesus was he did not sound like the other religious leaders. He didn't sound like what the people were hearing in their day. And so their natural reaction was to wonder whether or not he really was an Old Testament prophet or the Messiah or not. He didn't come with the prevailing theology of the day. He didn't identify with any sect of the day. His preaching and teaching was so different from the Pharisees and scribes that people were inclined to think that he had come to subvert the authority of the word of God and of the prophets. And to substitute a new interpretation. He came and he threw over the traditions of men. He threw over the extraneous, all the, all the things that they were doing, the legalistic rules. He disregarded them. And he kept putting an emphasis, not on the outward, but on what? On the inward. And this is the essence of what Jesus is teaching. This is the essence of this statement, is that it is an inward morality that God is concerned with. And it is an inward morality that is the life source that a new creation and this new humanity now lives out of. It is not an outward standard that we now adhere to. It is something that happens in the heart of man. And so the people are saying, who is this man? He's proclaiming grace and mercy. He's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of the tax collectors. He's hanging out with the worst people. How could this man be a religious leader? Because he's looking, as Dean said, at the heart, as Kevin said, at the heart of man. Antifa? Wicked, rebellious, anarchists? Yeah. What do you expect? It's the spirit of the age. It hates God. It hates God. And it hates authority. And it will only increase. It's being held back right now, Paul tells us. It's being held back right now. It's being held back right now until he is removed. Something is going to change on the earth, but it's being held back. But it's the heart of man that has always been the issue with God. 
And so Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish all of the law and all of the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. In fact, heaven until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail. A jot was just a little brush stroke of a Hebrew character. A tittle was even a smaller brush stroke of a Hebrew character. So small and insignificant. He said, not one of these will pass away until all of this is fulfilled. Until all of this is fulfilled. Until, until, this is the way the, end, the New Living Translation uh, says that verse. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its perfect purpose is achieved. So Jesus came, yes, as a revolutionary, but not to overthrow truth, but to lift the standard of truth to where God intended it to be. The bar had fallen so low, it had simply become traditions of men and the interpretation of men, but Jesus came to bring the bar back to where God intended it to be, which was truth, true righteousness, and true justice. What does he mean by the term the law? Let's just really quickly talk about that. Well, there are, there are at least four different interpretations of the law that we could have. The first would have been the Ten Commandments. The law was the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Secondly, the law was used to refer to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That was also referred to as the law. Could have been the Ten Commandments when you said the law. Could have been the, Decal uh, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And sometimes, thirdly, the, the law was simply, as I said a moment ago, the whole Old Testament. But usually when they used the word law in Jesus' time, they weren't speaking of the Ten Commandments, and they weren't speaking of the Pentateuch, and they weren't speaking of the Old Testament. They were talking about the oral scribal traditions that had been passed down from various rabbis. For example, one of the commandments was to keep the Sabbath holy and not to work on the Sabbath. And so now they set out to, to interpret that. What does this really mean? How much weight can you really carry? They, first they decided, well, it, it's a burden. You cannot have a burden on the Sabbath because that will be in violation of keeping the Sabbath, of keeping it holy and of resting. So we have to determine what is work. And so they decided work was to carry a burden. You couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath. So then they had to say, what is a burden? This is true. So the scribal law said a burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig. Or enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Or enough honey to put on a wound. Or enough water to moisten an eye salve. Or enough paper to write a short note and the ink. Anything beyond that is a burden and anything beyond that is violation of the Sabbath. And so they spent endless hours arguing whether or not a man could lift a lamp and put it from one place to another. Whether or not a tailor could walk out of his store with a needle in his robe if it weighed more than a dry fig.
whether you could go outdoors with false teeth because they weighed more than a dried fig if they had false teeth. If you could lift up your child on a Sabbath. And so what happens to Jesus? What does he do on the Sabbath? He heals a person. And the Pharisees are up in arms because he was doing work. And so Jesus says, you hypocrites. If you have a donkey that falls into a, into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not pull it out? Of course you will, because it's your livelihood. But I heal on the Sabbath, and you condemn me. Because you don't understand the heart of the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath, you have no concept of it. When Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, he was not talking about these traditions. He came to abolish these traditions. But he did not come to violate the law as given by God in its intent and its purpose, but to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the absolute inviolable law of God, a law that will never change, a law that can never change. And so Paul would write in the book of Romans, the law is holy and good. But I'm going to get to my main point here and wrap up in a minute. We're talking about new humanity, the why Jesus said what he did. This is now how you must live. He's talking about what the true law of God is and why it is so important, because it is absolute truth. But all the traditions of men, I remember when I was a young believer, I was in this very conservative church in Santa Barbara, and the kids would run in the building, and some older lady grabbed one of them one day, and she said, quit running in the house of God. And I, I saw all I could do not to just... The house of God... I'm the house of God. You're the house. This isn't the house of God. This is a building. The traditions of men. The way that we view this Christian faith has become filled with similar things even in our own experiences. Jesus is not interested in the traditions of men. He's interested in what is true, what is truly of his heart what is truly the revelation of the will of God. So when he said that he didn't come to abolish, he was not talking about the, the traditions that men had devised and the scribes had come up with. He was talking about he was not going to destroy the truth of the word, the truth of the law as given by God, that which was holy and good. And the question I had was, how did Jesus fulfill it? He said, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. How did he fulfill it? And uh, the answer is, again, debated by scholars. One of the answers, which is obvious, is that he, he fulfilled it by simply living in obedience to it. We know that. He perfectly obeyed. But I believe something even greater was true. He, full, he fulfilled it, and try to grasp your mind with it, this with your mind. He fulfilled it by being its fulfillment. 
He is the fulfillment of it in his person. Not just by what he said or by what he did, but by who he was. Five times in the New Testament, Jesus claimed to be the theme of the whole Old Testament. Jesus claimed himself to be the theme of the whole Old Testament. Hebrews 10.7, Matthew 5.39, Matthew 5.17, Luke 24.27, and Luke 24.44. Five times he essentially said, I am the theme of the whole thing. And so Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 1.20, all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. He is the one who fulfills it all. And so you may have heard this, but I'm going to read it, and it'll take me about two minutes. You may have already heard this. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the reigning king. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of broken walls. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is the ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is the Lord, our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is true wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is the true lover and bridegroom of the church. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the eternal husband, forever married to a backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the savior. In Jonah, he is the great missionary. In Micah, he is the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist, pleading for revival. In Zephaniah, he is the Lord Almighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer of the lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain opened in the house of David for sin and for cleansing. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. He is the theme of the Old Testament. Every bit of its history, he encompasses it all. I did not come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And not heaven or earth, it will pass away before all of this is accomplished. And it will not be finally accomplished until he returns. But it's already been set in motion. So what does this mean for us? Quickly. In answer to how did Jesus fulfill it, this is the key for us. He fulfilled it, the law and the prophets. He filled all of this through his life, death, and resurrection, which is what we put our faith in, the finished work of Christ. 
Paul teaches a radical truth in Romans chapter 7. And this is what he teaches. He says that Jesus dying as a man died to the law. He died to the law. He died to the demands of the law given to Moses by God. Okay, listen now. Listen, 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 listen. What he said he came to fulfill, he died to. Contradiction? No, you'll see why in a minute. Paul teaches in Romans 7 that Jesus dying as a man died to the law. And his logic is very simply this, that death frees you from law's jurisdiction and power. The law has no power nor no, no, no jurisdiction over a dead man. You can scream at him all you want. It doesn't matter. And he will not do anything to violate it anyway. He's dead. And the reason this was so important to Paul is because the power of sin is derived from the law. Sin gets its power from the law because we can't keep it. It's a standard that is unattainable apart from grace. It's a standard that tells us what to do and what not to do. It tells us what is sin and what is not sin. And we cannot keep it apart from the grace of God. And so Paul is basically saying in Romans 7, now you are free, I am free from sin's power because we've identified with Christ's death through faith. And because we identified with Christ's death, Paul says we died with him. Even though I wasn't born, even though it was 2,000 years before I would be born, my faith in 1975 placed me on that cross with Christ in actual reality regarding the power of sin. And my identification with him, with his death, has freed me from the, listen, the power of sin because I'm dead to the law. But there's this conflict at the end of chapter 7 where Paul is describing conflict of someone and he says it's himself of doing what he doesn't want to do and not being able what he wants to do what he wants to do and feeling like he does, he's not doing what he needs to do and then cries out, wretched man that I am who will free me? Who will free me from this life? of sin and death. And there's a huge debate that goes on in theology. Is that pre-conversion talk or post-conversion talk? The end of Romans 7. Is Paul crying out as a, as a man, as a Pharisee, before he'd come to understand the grace of God and being justified by faith, and he's struggling within himself because he was a Pharisee and he knew the law, but he couldn't keep it, he couldn't keep it, but he wanted to keep it because he loved the law, because he was a good Pharisee. But he couldn't keep it, he couldn't keep it, and finally Paul cries out, right? Or is he talking as a believer who is struggling? I believe he's talking pre-conversion. Other people are going to say, no, it's post. I think the struggle in Galatians between the flesh and the spirit is post-conversion. I believe this is an this is a, a, a experience that it was pre-conversion. Now, the reason is because of Romans 8. Turn there with me. Are you with me? Or am I speaking a foreign language? 
And I'm almost finished. And I'm talking about what this means that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Why does it matter? Why did he put it this place in the Sermon on the Mount? That's what I'm getting to. I'm driving it home for us. He cries out at the end of chapter 7. In verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Look at the word deliver. Who will rescue me? Who will, who will take hold of me radically? Colossians 1 and Galatians 1, Paul? Yeah. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He goes, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation. So this is his answer. There's no condemnation now. I'm not wretched. I don't have to have this feeling of being wretched. I'm not condemned. Because, listen, because the law of the spirit of life, interesting statement, has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's past tense. That's done. Two laws. There's the law of sin and death. The antifa. Full-fledged manifestation. Law of sin and death. And there's the law of the spirit of life. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it, Paul? By sending, verse 3, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned, listen, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, this is it, listen, listen, in order that the righteous requirement, here it is, of the law, might be what? <sighs> Did you see that? To fulfill it. And not only did he fulfill it, it's fulfilled in us. It's fulfilled in us. And then he goes on in Romans 8, and he talks about how and why because it all comes down to a mindset. Where your mind is set, he said. If it's set on the flesh, the mindset on the flesh is death. The man who lives with his mindset on the flesh is living in death. But the man who lives with his mindset in the things of the Spirit is in life. Jesus says, these, these, <laughs> this is what he says, and I, I'm landing. Jesus says this, two verses in, 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 in following in, in our text in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He first says this. He says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if your mind goes to performing better and doing better, you're doomed because they did a good job of outward adherence. But he wasn't talking about outward adherence. And then he makes this statement later on. Therefore, listen to this one. Be ye perfect as what? As God your Father is perfect. It's like, give me a break, Lord. My righteousness has to exceed 
that of the Pharisees? And I have to even be as perfect as God? What do you, how could that, you see the bar, where the bar was down so low and, and the Pharisees were able to step over it through all of their little traditions. But when Jesus put the bar where it belongs, nobody can attain it except those in whom the law has been fulfilled. And how is it fulfilled? It's fulfilled by the indwelling life of the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the new life. It's the life of God. It's the, it's the life of Christ who fulfilled the law at work in us by his Spirit. The new covenant in Jeremiah 31 promises a new heart. And he promises what? That the law would be where? Written on our hearts. It's an inward adherence. It's a morality that starts, Matt said this, on the inside and we live it out. It does not start on the outside and then affect the in. Are you, can you hear that? It does not start with an outward obedience and an outward adherence. Must there be obedience? Yes. But obedience proves that there's genuine faith. It doesn't earn anything. But it begins here and we live out. And that's why I'll close with these verses. Ephesians 4.8. Turn to, to them with me quickly. Ephesians 4.8, because I know you want to go to Jack's and eat and to the Red Alcove. Ephesians 4.8. Listen to what Paul writes. Oh, I got the wrong text. See, that my dream's coming true. Let's go to Galatians 5.16. I got that one right. Galatians 5, 16 through 8. I was going to write them all out and then read them to you. And then I thought, no, nah, you guys need to turn in your Bible somewhere. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. <clears throat> to keep you from, listen, doing the things that you want to do. There's, there is a struggle, but it's flesh against Spirit. But here it is. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, does that mean the Ten Commandments are meaningless? No. They're holy and righteous and eternally true. And that's the, me the measure by which God will judge. That's, that's going to be the standard by which he will judge the unrighteous. And, and the righteous as well, because... We're all going to stand before that throne. But we're going to stand before that throne clothed in a man who fulfilled the law for us, and we're going to identify with him. And we're going to go, Father, his works are my works. His obedience, that's my obedience. His, yeah, whatever he did, that's me. I'm with him. And the Father's going to go, yeah, you're right, son. You are clothed in that righteousness. And I'm going to go, thank you, Jesus. Look at Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. You guys know these verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, yes, I have. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. 
because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It's an identity issue. It's a matter of who we understand ourselves to be. In verses 9 through 14, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man, which is being renewed in, excuse me, and you put on the new man. You put off the old with its practices and put on the new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Brothers and sisters, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount that will follow, we're going to see this. Jesus is going to say six times, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Six times. You have heard it said. By who? The Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. But I say unto you. Six times he's going to confront the thinking, and it's all around identity. It's all around understanding true righteousness. It's all around what is truth and how is it lived out. And he's going to bring then an understanding of true, new creation, new humanity, life. Amen. Stand with me, please.